Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18. We continue in our study of this Old Testament book that chronicles the life and the reign of King David. When it comes to David's reign, we need to remember that this is no ordinary kingship. It is a very theologically significant one. It was God himself who back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 Uh, Through the prophet Samuel, first anoints David to be king. And it was God himself who, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, makes a covenant with David and tells him that your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So David isn't just any king of Israel. uh, Just one in a long succession of kings. No, he is the king of Israel in the sense that the kingdom promises come through him. And so the Messiah king who would come from that line would be referred to not as the son of Solomon or the son of Rehoboam, the son of any other king, but the son of David. And so David's kingship is centrally important, not just to the book of 2 Samuel, but also the broader storyline of the entire Bible. But for the last several chapters now, David's kingship has been under a major attack. You'll remember it was back in chapter 15 that David's own son, Absalom, declares himself to be king in a coup and causes David to flee from Jerusalem into the wilderness. And then you'll remember last time from chapter 17 that Absalom's counselor, Ahithophel, he advises Absalom that he should let Ahithophel go after David in this quick targeted strike while David's weak, while he's weary, while he's on the run. Now militarily, that would have been the smart thing to do to deliver that final crushing blow while David's on the ropes. Even the narrator refers to that advice as the good counsel of Ahithophel. But you'll remember Absalom foolishly rejects that good counsel and instead goes with the counsel of Hushai. Don't rush in, Absalom. No, take your time build up a massive army, and then you, Absalom, you lead that army in a massive offensive that's going to wipe out not just David, but all of your enemies. It was counsel that appealed to Absalom's vanity. Well, just picture yourself at the head of Israel's glorious armies. Don't let Ahithophel take all of the glory. No, you, oh great king Absalom, you should get the glory. But what Absalom doesn't realize, though we the readers have known this since chapter 15, is that Hushai is a double agent. Hushai is working for King David to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And that's exactly what happens as Absalom ends up going with Hushai's plan. Which is really good news for David, because it gives him some much-needed time to regroup at his new base in Mahanaim, prepare for the upcoming battle. So that's the backdrop of our chapter today, 2 Samuel chapter 18. The two sides, David's men, Absalom's men, 
uh, they are now ready to engage in this decisive battle for the kingdom. But before we get to the chapter, let me remind you of one more thing. That's that we already know exactly how all of this is going to end up. And this is not me trying to spoil the ending for you. Don't blame the narrator. Because he's the one who told us in chapter 17, verse 14, that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So even before we read a single verse of chapter 18, we already know exactly what's about to happen. Right? This is not going to end well for Absalom. And so with all that in mind, let's start by just reading the text. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Etai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. 
and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz run, ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second Samuel chapter 18. It is a narrative about a civil war. Sometimes we can lose perspective when reading biblical narratives, but this is no small skirmish, right? This is not like a little minor dust-up. This is a battle of massive proportions. Just to give you an idea of scale, the bloodiest battle ever fought on American soil was the Battle of Gettysburg, July 
1863, during the American Civil War, the estimated number of deaths in that battle is a little over 7,000. Here in this battle, in 2 Samuel 18, look at verse 7, we're told that the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. 20,000 deaths in one day, that's almost three times as many deaths as the deadliest battle in American history. I know it's not exactly apples to apples to compare wars and battles separated by almost 3,000 years, but you get my point. This is no small skirmish, right? This is a massive, epic battle, which, by the way, is exactly what Absalom was envisioning when he took Hushai's advice. But this is a huge battle involving massive armies with many casualties, many deaths. And when you think about it that way, 2 Samuel 18 becomes all the more interesting. Because we've all read enough history textbooks, right? Think back to uh, ninth grade global history. Right? We, we've all read enough historical accounts of large battles and wars like this to know that this is not the typical way that a war of that magnitude is presented. Notice, for example, that the entirety of the battle itself, the battle itself is summarized in just three verses. Verses 6 through 8. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now that's it. Like in terms of the battle itself, like the big picture, like movements and developments and results, that's pretty much all that we have like that, and the second half of verse 17, where it says, and all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now that's it. That's three and a half out of the 33 verses of this chapter. The rest of this chapter, almost 30 verses, they're not about the big picture at all. You know, those verses zoom in. They all zoom in on one character. And so this chapter, one that recounts the most significant battle in the life of the most significant character in the Old Testament, it's really not about the battle at all. No, it's all about Absalom. Partly because I'm a creature of habit, and partly because I'm cheap, uh, the tech people would refer to me as a, a late adopter. Right? For, the, for the longest time, I had like an iPhone 3 or something like that. Like, like a really, really outdated model. The reason I finally gave in and upgraded, I'm seeing everybody else taking these beautiful pictures on portrait mode. You know, where the, the camera focuses in on the person and then blurs out the background. And meanwhile, I've got all these like you know, grainy one megapixel pictures, like all unfocused. And I think to myself, I got to get a phone with portrait mode. Well, this chapter is like the portrait mode recounting of this battle with Absalom as the sole focus. The camera is focused in on Absalom and everything else 
right? Like all the other fighting, all the other events, the 20,000 other people who died in this battle, they're all blurred in the background. The focus is only on Absalom. So let's follow the Holy Spirit's lead here. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of all scripture. Let's follow his lead and look at the entire narrative now from that perspective, with Absalom as the focus. And so appropriately, we're going to use three Absalom-centric points to guide us through this chapter. Point number one, the sympathy for Absalom. Point number two, the shame of Absalom. And point number three, the sorrow for Absalom. And so first, point number one, let's think about the sympathy for Absalom. That's in verses one through five. Remember that Absalom has gone with Hushai's plan, and that allows David some time to regroup. It allows him to organize his men. It allows him to come up with a plan of action. And so with regards to the organization, David divides his army into three. He puts him into three groups under the charge of Joab and Abishai and Ittai the Gittite. You remember him from chapter 15. And initially, David wants to go with them. But his men don't allow him to do that because they know that he's a marked man. He's the one that they're after, and he's just too valuable. And so David ultimately stays back. In contrast to Absalom, who's going to be at the head of his army, right? Keep that in mind. So that's the organization, and then the the plan of action. Well, if you look at verse 6, they are going to engage Absalom's forces in the forest of Ephraim, Uh, probably thinking that that terrain would neutralize the size advantage that Absalom's army had. Like in an open field, the size advantage of Absalom's army would have been huge, but in the forest of Ephraim, it's kind of this uncharted territory here, well, that would allow David's experienced fighters to utilize the tricky terrain to their advantage. So with that organization and that plan of action— the soldiers march out. They are ready for battle. But before they leave, David makes a very important announcement. Verse 5, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently. What are they, arm wrestling? This is war. Remember, Absalom's plan is to destroy every single man on David's side. We shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men who are with him, not one will be left. Like, that's the enemy's strategy, to kill all of you. But our strategy, let's go easy on him. Let's put the red practice jersey on him. Let's deal gently with him. Why would David say that? Well, of course, because here we're dealing with Absalom, David's son. The young man Absalom. 
Deal gently with the young man Absalom. You, you can almost sense uh, David's paternal instinct, his, his fatherly concern kicking in here. And it's not just this verse. As a matter of fact, every time David says the name Absalom in this chapter, he either says the young man Absalom or my son Absalom or Absalom my son. Like it is clear what's consuming David's mind right now. Like even as he's organizing his men and even as he's planning these tactics and preparing his men for this crucial battle, he is completely preoccupied by thoughts of his son's welfare and safety. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And point number one, the sympathy for Absalom. And because of his great love for Absalom, David is just longing to show him mercy. See, at the end of the day, even after everything that Absalom's done, David still has a very soft spot for his son. He has murdered David's other son, Amnon. He has subverted David's authority, actively stealing the hearts of the people. He's declared war on David by proclaiming himself to be king. He's humiliated David publicly by taking his wives. He's plotted and planned David's destruction. And by doing that, doing all that, worst of all, Absalom has gone against God himself by rebelling against the Lord's anointed. But David's not thinking of Absalom here as the enemy of the state or as a rebel to the throne or as an opponent of God. He can only think of Absalom as his precious son. And that's completely distorted his thinking here. Point number one, the sympathy for Absalom. Point number two, the shame of Absalom. We're in verses 6 through 18. First, the narrator zooms out from Absalom in verses 6 through 8, right? We're we're exiting portrait mode for just a few moments here. We're given the 10,000-foot view of the battle. Basically, this is a great victory for David's side. Huge casualties are suffered on Absalom's side. And we're given this strange little detail at the end of verse 8 that the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Uh, The Hebrew literally says, the forest ate people, which kind of sounds like like an M. Night Shyamalan movie or something like that. Uh, This is obviously meant to be an expression. I don't think it's talking about trees literally eating people. We are supposed to see this as God, through the forces of nature, fighting on David's behalf. It's kind of like in Joshua chapter 10. Israel's fighting against the Amorites, and it says, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Same same idea here. Uh, There are more people who died because of nature wreaking havoc, right? God doing this. Uh, Cliffs and pits and swamps and tragic accidents on this treacherous terrain than because of actual combat. But remember the point. The focus of this chapter. 
Because that expression that the forest devoured people also points us to Absalom. We're about to leave this 10,000 foot view and we're going to return back to one particular individual who was devoured by the forest. And so Absalom's in the thick of this battle. Remember, David's at home. David's chilling at Mahanaim. But Absalom is in the thick of the battle and in this encounter with David's forces, he goes under the thick branches of a great oak and his head gets jammed into some like forked, low-hanging branches. His mule, go figure, his mule doesn't care, just keeps on running. And so there he is, uh, the pretender to Israel's throne. His head is stuck in a tree. He's suspended between heaven and earth. And the first soldier who sees him, he doesn't do anything. He remembers David's command to deal gently with my son Absalom. Joab has no such reservations. And so he, along with his armor bearers, he kills Absalom. Now you might remember back in chapter 14, Joab was the one advocating for reconciliation between David and Absalom. You remember the whole thing with the the woman of Tekoa and how Joab basically tricks David into bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem Well, the same Joab here realizes now that at this point, like as badly as David seems to want it, a reconciliation is no longer an option. Absalom has gone way too far. Uh, The toothpaste is out of the tube. And so Joab takes matters into his own hands. He disobeys the king's orders. He kills Absalom, realizing that David's never going to do that himself. And they bury his body in a pit in the forest. So just like that, Absalom is dead. The war is over. Joab blows the trumpet and the fighting ceases. Look at the end of verse 17. All Israel, that's Absalom's army, all Israel fled everyone to his own home. But remember the focus of the chapter. Remember that we are in portrait mode here. Our focus is Absalom. The focus is not on the battle itself. The the end of the battle is summarized in half a verse in verse 17. No, the focus is entirely on Absalom. And so you'll notice that his death of the 20,000 people who died on that day, his death gets almost 10 full detailed verses from verses 9 through 18. And so it's those details that we ought to pay attention to here. In those details, the narrator goes out of his way to paint Absalom's death as particularly tragic, ironic, and shameful. Because here's this guy. He's all about image. You remember the extended description of his long flowing hair, how from the sole of his foot, that's down there, to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And how he got himself a a chariot and horses and 50 runners to go before him with all this pomp and circumstance. Remember the appeal of Hushai's plan. You're going to be at the head of Israel's armies. 
Can you imagine that glorious scene? You're going to be glorified, Absalom. This man, Absalom, like his life is like the epitome of pride. You want to be happy in life? Find someone who loves you like Absalom loves Absalom. But now think about his death. He's all about his image. And the last image that anyone's going to have of him is him dangling in midair from a tree. His donkey is running away from him. He's helpless in the hands of his enemies. I mean, can you think of a more embarrassing, undignified, shameful death for the self-proclaimed king of Israel? And then you think about his burial. He basically has his body thrown into the pit somewhere in the forest, covered with stones. And you see how the narrator contrasts that shameful burial in verse 17 with what he tells us in the very next verse. Look at verse 18 about the pillar that Absalom set up for himself. He's all about image. He wants to be remembered with honor. I've got to establish my legacy somehow. I've got to be remembered as great. That's why he sets up Absalom's monument. But at the end of the day, instead of being memorialized by his own majestic stone pillar, he's memorialized by a heap of stones somewhere in the woods. I mean, can you think of a more embarrassing, undignified, shameful burial for the self-proclaimed king of Israel? In his death, in his burial... Absalom has proved the proverb right. When pride comes, then comes shame. Point number two, the shame of Absalom. But you see, Absalom's shame, it goes even deeper than that. Because look again at verse 10. The soldier remarks, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Absalom died hanging on a tree. That might not mean much to our 21st century American ears. But if you were a Jew back then, you were familiar with the law of God, you knew exactly what that meant. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man, one hanging from a tree. I saw Absalom hanging in an oak is cursed by God. But remember, this is a curse that Absalom has brought upon himself. Let me just consider all the things that he's done in recent chapters. He's rebelled against his father. And what does Deuteronomy 27 verse 16 say about those who rebel against their father? Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father. He's taken his father's wives. And Deuteronomy 27 20 says, Cursed be anyone who takes his father's wife. Absalom has brought the curse of God upon himself. Now here God sees to it that he's hanged on a tree. For a hanged man is cursed by God. 
So while he may have evaded human justice to this point, after all, he he was in charge, we're reminded that vengeance ultimately belongs to the Lord, and that he will repay. Proverbs 11, 21, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. And for Absalom, this was his day of reckoning. Point number two, the shame of Absalom. The sympathy for Absalom, the shame of Absalom, that brings us now to point number three in this Absalom-centric chapter, the sorrow for Absalom in verses 19 through 33. So Absalom is now dead. The war is over. That's great news for David. David can reclaim his throne. David can go home to Jerusalem. And David can reign as the undisputed king once again. And so it's great news for David, right? Who doesn't love being the bearer of good news? And so Ahimaaz, you remember him. It was Ahimaaz and Jonathan who were the messengers in the previous chapter, told David about Absalom's plans. As soon as the battle is done, Ahimaaz volunteers himself to Joab. Let me run, carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab knows David. He knows what David really cares about. Remember point number one, the sympathy for Absalom. He knows that if David hears that Absalom dies, it doesn't really matter what else happened. That would be bad news for David. And so he's hesitant to send Ahimaaz. Maybe he thinks that Ahimaaz would be in danger for delivering bad news to David. And so instead he sends his Cushite servant. But Ahimaaz is insistent that he go. Come what may. He says that twice. Come what may. Let me go. And so Joab lets him go, thinking that at this point the the Cushite has left long ago, and so Ahimaaz is going to be too late anyway. But apparently, Ahimaaz was a really fast dude. It's like bullet bill in Mario Kart, right? It's kind of weaving through the course, passing everybody by. And so he comes into sight first. David and the watchmen, they, they see the individual runner coming at them as opposed to the entire army retreating. And they anticipate good news. Ahimaaz arrives. All is well. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. But now look at David's response in verse 29. It's not rejoicing in the victory. It's not showing concern for the men who risked their lives for him. It's not praising God for delivering David from his enemies, which is what Ahimaaz does in his report. It's not reflecting on how God against all visible odds, has kept his promise to David that his kingdom will be made sure forever. Now, like we've said, David only cares about one thing. Is it well with the young man, Absalom? That apparently catches Ahimaaz off guard, in spite of Joab's warning. And so we picture him kind of freezing up in that moment. It's just one of those rambling, uh, Absalom, uh, well, I saw, I, I 
great commotion. I, I don't really know what happened. Well, in reality, he knew exactly what happened to Absalom. Right? Joab told them very clearly in verse 20, the king's son is dead. David's smart enough to know what's going on here. And so he turns his attention to the Cushite, who's just arrived. The good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Even the Cushite, right, this foreigner, has enough sense to give God glory for the deliverance. But again, David's only thinking about one thing. And so he asks the same exact question to the Cushite as he did to Ahimaaz. Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite? He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't hem and he doesn't haw. May the enemies of my Lord and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Translation, Absalom is dead. David's greatest fear has come true. That's a fascinating little narrative there. Joab's hesitation And then you've got this like dramatic foot race, the the anticipation as the two runners approach Mahanaim, David's question for both men, the two separate messages being given back to back. That's all fascinating. But you know what the most fascinating thing about that passage is? Just how long and detailed it is. Like, couldn't all of verses 19 to 32 just be summarized in one sentence? Then a Cushite came from the battlefield to report to David that Absalom was dead. But remember, we're in portrait mode here. We're focused on Absalom. So even in the aftermath of the battle, even after he's dead, the only thing that matters is, fittingly, Absalom. So even as this good news comes to David, the rebellion's been quashed, the war is over, the kingdom is secure, David can't celebrate or rejoice or delight because he is completely wrecked by the news of Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Count it for yourself. That's three Absaloms and five my sons. If saying something twice is a way to emphasize it in Hebrew, well, what's saying something five times in just a few breaths? We hear in these words the deep, deep anguish of a father who has just lost his son. Here in this moment, David cannot see Absalom the rebel. He cannot see Absalom, the king of the earth, who has set himself up against the Lord and his anointed. He cannot see Absalom, the man of treachery. He can only see Absalom, my son. The little boy who once sat on his lap. The son who was once the joy of his heart. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Point number three, the sorrow for Absalom. 
you know what must have really compounded David's sorrow here? Like it's bad enough that his son Absalom is dead. But what could have only made it worse is knowing that it was his own sin that started all this. It was his sin with Bathsheba, his murdering of Uriah. That's what set into motion all the events that has now culminated in this. Remember, it was God himself who told David, chapter 12, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so the sword has not departed. The sword has now devoured his beloved son, Absalom. Yes, Absalom was a wicked man. Yes, as we pointed out earlier, Absalom brought upon himself the curse of God for his sin. That is all true. But it is also true that this is a consequence of David's sin. Because, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, the sword shall never depart from your house. Brothers and sisters, let's not move past this point, the sorrow for Absalom, before we reflect on this truth, the sorrow that David's sin brought into his life. What's true of David specifically here is true of all of God's children generally. That sin brings sorrow. Now, we are not going to be able to see the link between our sin and our sorrow as clearly as David does here. The prophet Nathan reveals it to him. So we do need to be careful about drawing straight lines, connecting a certain sorrow that we're experiencing with a certain sin that we've committed. But the general principle still holds true. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And if David had known He had known all the sorrow that he would go through as a consequence of his sin. How the sword would just devour his family. This is now the third son that he's lost. If he had known all the sorrow, just think about how much less tempting that sin would have been. Brothers and sisters, may that serve us as a stern warning of what the Proverbs so urgently tell us. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Translation, a sin brings sorrow. Point number three, the sorrow for Absalom. So that's Second Samuel 18 the portrait mode view of this civil war. Absalom is the focus. The sympathy for Absalom, the shame of Absalom, the sorrow for Absalom. But before we finish, let's consider once again the last verse of the chapter. 
It's David bewailing the loss of his son. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Would I had died instead of you. David, because of his great love for Absalom, he longs to substitute himself in Absalom's place. Yes, Absalom deserved to die because of the curse of God that was upon him, but if only I could have died instead of Absalom. But David, you know that's impossible. Psalm 49. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No man can ransom another. No man can die for another's sins because each man must die for his own sins. And David knows that he's got plenty. Would I had died instead of you? David, as a man with so many imperfections himself, he could never do that. But that's where David, once again, points us to a greater king from his line, the one who would be called the son of David. Brothers and sisters, we cannot read through this Absalom-centric chapter without realizing that well, we are like Absalom. Because of our sin, we, like Absalom, are under the curse of God. Each of us, because of our sin against the holy God, is cursed to the judgment of our sin. Ultimately, an eternity in hell. And so Absalom's shame is our shame. The shame that each and every one of us deserves. But even as Absalom is under that curse, well, King David, because of his great love for Absalom, desires to show him mercy. We think of how King Jesus, in his great love for sinners like us, desires to show us mercy, but then here is the big difference. Here is where David is a mere shadow and Christ is the substance. Because David cannot do what he desires to do. Show mercy to Absalom and take Absalom's place. But what David could not do, the son of David did. Jesus died in the place of sinners, would I had died instead of you? Sinners like you and me, sinners who would place their trust in him. And how does he do it? Well, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Absalom was hanged on a tree as the curse of God for his sin, and David could do nothing about it. We are subject to the curse of sin, the curse of God for our sin, 
but Christ was hanged on a tree and became a curse for us. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And so Jesus takes the place of Absalom's like us, suffering the wrath of God for our sin, dying the death that we deserve, that we might be forgiven. And whereas David cries, my son, my son, would I had died instead of you. The son of David cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, that's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. So even as the focus of this chapter has been entirely on Absalom, we've been talking all about Absalom, this Absalom-centric chapter, we see in the background of this picture, we see in the background of every picture in the Old Testament, the overarching storyline of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that God's people can read a tragic, sorrowful, shameful chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 18, and yet still come away rejoicing in our King. Would I had died instead of you? For David, that was impossible. For Jesus, it was not only possible, that's exactly what he accomplished. Father, we thank you for this story and how it so clearly points us to your son. Father, thank you for Jesus, that he died instead of sinners like us, that he took our place on the cross, that he suffered your wrath that we deserve that we might become your children. Father, help us to see the glories of Calvary in every narrative of Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name.